1: Hello and welcome to Biz Help for You with Candy Messer. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you found the information on last week's show, sales tax, South Dakota versus Wayfair, what it means for businesses selling online, informative. If you're unable to join us and would like to listen to the episode, it can be located on the right side of my page under the episode directory, which can be found on voiceamerica.com on the business channel. Or you can search my name and the page will come up. If there are any topics you'd find beneficial or questions you have, please feel free to reach out to me at media at So today I wanted to talk about important laws to know when hiring an employee. Are you an employer with staff working in your business or thinking of hiring someone soon? It's important to understand the laws to make sure you're in compliance in order to avoid any penalties that could be assessed for non-compliance. Keep in mind that you must follow the laws that are most strict, and often these are the state guidelines. I'll be sharing information with you that applies in general. Be sure to check with your state agency or a human resources expert in your state to make sure you follow all labor laws that apply. Since California is one of the most strict and where I'm located and where many of our clients reside, I will periodically refer to the laws here as well as the federal guidelines. Following are some of the areas in which employers make mistakes. And I wanna go over these potential hazards so you can know what is expected when hiring staff. The Fair Labor Standards Act, also known as FLSA, establishes rules regarding minimum wage, overtime, record keeping, and youth employment for those involved in the private sector and federal, state, and local governments. The first thing to understand is what the words exempt and non-exempt mean. Exempt means the worker is excluded from the rules that apply in the FLSA and non-exempt means the rules do apply. For executive, administrative, professional, and computer employee exemptions, the employee must be compensated on a salary basis at a rate not less than $455 per week. Job titles do not determine exempt status. In order for an exemption to apply, an employee's specific job duties and salary must meet all the requirements of the department's regulations. Following our examples of exemptions from the regulations. Executives. The employee's primary duty must be managing the enterprise, or managing a customarily recognized department or subdivision of the enterprise. The employee must customarily and regularly direct the work of at least two or more other full-time employees or their equivalent. And the employee must have the authority to hire or fire other employees or the employee's suggestions and recommendations as to the hiring, firing, advancement, promotion, or any other change of status of other employees must be given particular weight. Administrative, the employee's primary duty must be the performance of office or non-manual work directly related to the management or general business operations of the employer or the employer's customers. And the employee's primary duty includes the exercise of discretion and independent judgment with respect to matters of significance. Professional, the employee's primary duty must be the performance of work requiring advanced knowledge defined as work which is predominantly intellectual in character and which includes work requiring the consistent exercise of discretion and judgment. The advanced knowledge must be in a field of science or learning and the advanced knowledge must be customarily acquired by a prolonged course of specialized intellectual instruction. And for a creative professional, the employee's primary duty must be the performance of work requiring invention, imagination, originality, or talent in a recognized field of artistic or creative endeavor. And computer employees. The employee must be compensated either on a salary or fee basis at a rate not less than $455 per week or, if compensated on an hourly basis, at a rate not less than $27.63 an hour. The employee must be employed as a computer systems analyst, computer programmer, software engineer, or other similarly skilled worker in the computer field performing the duties described and the employee's primary duty must consist of number 1 the application of systems analysis techniques and procedures including consulting with user to determining hardware software or system functional specifications number 2 the design development documentation analysis creation testing or modification of computer systems or programs, including prototypes, based on and related to user or system design specifications. Number three, the design, documentation, testing, creation, or modification of computer programs related to machine operating systems. Or number four, a combination of the aforementioned duties the performance of which requires the same level of skills. And finally, outside sales. The employee's primary duty must be making sales, as defined in the FLSA, or obtaining orders or contracts for services, or for the use of facilities for which a consideration will be paid by the client or customer. and. The employee must be customarily and regularly engaged away from the employer's place or places of business. There are also exemptions for employees of seasonal establishments and farm workers, but I won't go into that information since most listening would not be employing staff in those industries. The exemptions provided by the FLSA apply only to white collar employees. Who meet the salary and duties tests set forth in the regulations. The exemptions do not apply to manual laborers or other blue-collar workers who perform work involving repetitive operations with their hands, physical skill, and energy. FLSA covered non-management employees in production, maintenance, construction, and similar occupations such as carpenters, electricians, mechanics, plumbers, Ironworkers, workers, craftsmen, operating engineers, longshoremen, construction workers, and laborers are entitled to minimum wage and overtime premium pay under FLSA and are not exempt no matter how highly paid they might be. Now that we've discussed who is exempt under FLSA, and more importantly, to know most are considered non-exempt let's discuss what it is they are not exempt from. Usually, the exemption is in regards to whether overtime must be paid to the employee. This first brings up the question, what is considered overtime? According to the federal guidelines, non-exempt employees must receive overtime pay for any hours worked over 40 in a work week which is defined as any fixed and regularly recurring period of 168 hours, seven consecutive 24-hour periods. The rate of overtime is not less than one and a half times the regular rate of pay. There is no requirement for overtime to be paid for work on weekends, holidays, or regular days of rest unless the hours worked puts them over the 40 total hours. There is no rule for the work week that must be established, but most businesses prefer a calendar week starting Sunday and ending Saturday. But as long as your pay period covers one full week, it can start on any day of the week. A flexible work schedule is an alternative to the traditional nine to five, 40 hour work week. It allows employees to vary their arrival and or departure times. Under some policies, Employees must work a prescribed number of hours, a pay period, to be present during a daily core time. The Fair Labor Standards Act does not address flexible work schedules. Alternative work arrangements, such as flexible work schedules, are a matter of agreement between the employer and the employee or the employee's representative. The work week ordinarily includes all time during which an employee is necessarily required to be on the employer's premises, on duty, or at a prescribed workplace. An employee who is required to remain on call on the employer's premises is working. According to the FLSA, an employee who is required to remain on call at home or who is allowed to leave a message where he or she can be reached is not working in most cases, while on call. However, a California appeals court ruled in Ward v. Tilley's on February 4, 2019, that if the employee has to call in to see if they were required to appear, that they are actually working and must be paid for their time. Attorneys from Fisher and Phillips LLP advised employers to call employees rather than requiring them to call in, making reporting optional rather than mandatory and not disciplining employees who fail to respond to check-in. Federal law does not require lunch or coffee breaks. However, when employers do offer short breaks, usually lasting about 5 to 20 minutes, federal law considers the breaks as compensable work hours that would be included in the hours worked during the work week, and considering in determining if overtime was worked. Unauthorized extensions of work breaks do not need to be counted as hours worked when the employer has expressly communicated to the employee that the authorized break may only last for a specific length of time and that any extension of the break is contrary to the employer's rules and any extension of the break will be punished. Bonafide meal periods, typically lasting at least 30 minutes, serve a different purpose than coffee or snack breaks and thus are not work time and are not compensable. The current federal minimum wage is $7.25 per hour and is valid in states that don't have a higher rate. A minimum wage of not less than $4.25 an hour is permitted for employees under 20 years of age during their first 90 consecutive calendar days of employment with an employer. But it's often more complicated if your state has a higher minimum wage compared to the federal government. Many states have areas that have voted higher rates into law than the federal government has enacted, but some cities or counties within a state may have a higher minimum wage than the state in which they are located. For instance, California has multiple jurisdictions that have passed higher wages, including Berkeley, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. Some states have higher rates based on the number of employees hired in the company, Arkansas, California, and West Virginia, and some have rates based on factors such as if health insurance is offered, Nevada, or the amount of revenue the company generates annually, Minnesota. The FLSA requires that a poster be displayed that outlines the provisions of the act, which is available for free by calling the Wage and Hour Division toll-free at 866-4-US-WAGE, or it can be downloaded from their website, at www.dol.gov. According to the US Department of Labor's wage and hour division, there are specific records that must be kept for each non-exempt worker. Number one, the employee's full name and social security number. Number two, address, including zip code. Number three, birth date, if younger than 19. Number four, sex and occupation. Number five, time and day of the week when the employee's work week begins. Number six, hours worked each day. Number seven, total hours worked each work week. Number eight, basis on which the employee's wages are paid, whether it's hourly, so much per week, or piecework. Number nine, the regularly hourly rate of pay. Number 10, total daily or weekly straight time earnings. Number 11, total overtime earnings for the workweek, number 12, all additions to or deductions from the employee's wages, 13, total wages paid each pay period, and finally, number 14, the date of payment and the pay period covered by the payment. So how long should records be maintained? All payroll records need to be kept for at least three years. Information with computations for wages should be retained for two years. This includes time cards, work tickets, wage rate tables, work time schedules, and records of additions to or deductions from wages. These records must be available for inspection and may be kept at the place of employment or a central records office. Employers may use any timekeeping method they choose, such as a time clock, a timekeeping tracking employee hours, or employees documenting times on the records. Any form is acceptable as long as it is complete and accurate. The employer may keep a record showing the exact schedule of daily and weekly hours and merely indicate that the worker did follow the schedule. When a worker is on a job for a longer or shorter period of time than the schedule shows, the employer must record the number of hours the worker actually worked on an exception basis. The FLSA provisions are designed to protect minors and prohibit their employees in jobs under conditions that could be detrimental to their health or well-being. And just like states often have more stringent rules for overtime and minimum wages, so too are the state laws for teen workers. To find the rules for your state, you can go to www.youthrules.gov and search the law library. If you'd like the direct link to be emailed to you, please reach out to us at media at abnp.com. The FLSA limits the employment of 14 to 15-year-olds to those jobs and time periods that the Secretary of Labor has determined will not interfere with their schooling and to conditions which will not interfere with their health and well-being. 14 and 15-year-olds may not be employed during school hours except as provided in work experience programs. School hours are determined by the local public school in the area the minor is residing while employed, even if they do not attend the public school. For instance, they attend private school or are homeschooled. They may not work before 7 a.m. or after 7 p.m. except from June 1st through Labor Day when the evening hours extended to 9 p.m., more than three hours a day on a school day or more than eight hours a day on a non-school day more than 18 hours a week during the school week, or more than 40 hours a week during non-school weeks. There are multiple pages in the regulations which spell out the occupations they are not allowed to perform, as well as specific jobs that are allowed, but the list is too long to go over at this time. There are additional guidelines built out for 16- to 17-year-olds and the duties they may perform in hazardous occupations if they're participating in a bona fide student learner or apprentice program. If you're considering hiring a minor and want to make sure you're in compliance with the job duties to be performed, see the Department of Labor website. Again, if you'd like a direct link, please reach out to media at abnp.com and I will send that to you. Although the FLSA does not require work permits to be issued in order to be employed, many states require this to be in compliance. Verify the guidelines for your state in all areas of employment before hiring a minor to make sure all regulations are followed. Well, it looks like it's about time to take a break. When we come back, we're going to discuss some of the employment mistakes made by business owners. You're listening to bizhelp for You with Candy Messer, on Voice America Internet Radio. We'll be right back after this brief commercial break.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you up late at night after a long day's work trying to do your bookkeeping? Are you frustrated with your lack of QuickBooks knowledge or feel you don't understand it at all? Do payroll tax calculations and reporting stress you out? Whether you're a sole proprietor or an officer of a corporation, Affordable Bookkeeping and Payroll Services is here to help. We work with overwhelmed entrepreneurs to remove the burden of bookkeeping and payroll tasks, giving them peace of mind and the freedom to do the parts of the business they love. Our bookkeeping clients include service-based businesses such as medical offices, fast food restaurants, landscapers, and gyms. We also assist franchise owners to create the necessary reports to submit each month. We are a full-service payroll company, assisting clients of 1 to 120 employees. We offer full and self-service options. If you're ready to offload tasks that burden you, reach out to us today at 310-534-5577 or email contact at abandp.com. Call us today. Have peace of mind tonight. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to BizHelp for You. If you have a question or comment about the show, send us an email to media at abnp.com. That's media at aband Now, back to BizHelp for You.
1: Welcome back to BizHelp For You with Candy Messer. In the last segment, I talked about federal regulations in the Fair Labor Standards Act. Now, let's take a look at some employment mistakes that are often made. Two key errors are often made when hiring staff, and they fall into categories of thinking workers are exempt from overtime and classifying them as independent contractors instead of employees. Classifying employees as exempt from overtime. So, as discussed previously, there are specific rules as to who should be paid overtime. Many owners think that if the employees are paid the same amount, no matter how many hours they work, they don't need to pay extra for overtime. But failing to calculate overtime for someone paid a salary who works additional hours above the 40 federal or the more stringent state regulations can be costly. FLSA has minimum civil penalties to be assessed for failing to meet the guidelines of the law. These include violation of record-keeping regulations, maximum penalty $1,052. Violation of the child labor standards, maximum penalty $12,845. Violation of child labor standards that causes serious injury or the death of a minor, maximum penalty $58,383. Willful or repeated violation of child labor standards that causes serious injury or death to a minor, maximum penalty $116,766. Repeated or willful violation of minimum wage or maximum hours for minor workers, the maximum penalty is $2,014. And repeated or willful violation of minimum wage or overtime for non-minor workers, maximum penalty is $2,014. And the second mistake that's often made, classifying workers as independent contractors instead of employees. Many feel it's just easier to pay someone their full earnings and not have to worry about withholding and remitting taxes, filing payroll returns, and getting workers' compensation. But misclassifying someone as a 1099 worker who doesn't fit the qualifications may put you at risk for interest and penalties on unpaid payroll taxes that should have been remitted to the tax agencies. The guidelines the IRS uses when determining if a worker is an employee or contractor fall into three categories, behavioral control, financial control, and relationship of the parties. Let's look at these in more detail. Behavioral control refers to the facts that show whether there's a right to direct or control how the worker does the work. A worker is an employee when the business has the right to direct and control the worker. The business does not have to actually direct or control the way the work is done, as long as the employer has the right to direct and control the work. Behavioral control factors fall into the categories of types of instruction given, degree of instruction, evaluation systems, and training. An employee is generally subject to the business's instructions about when, where, and how to work, which falls under the category types of instructions. All of the following are examples of types of instructions about how to do the work, when and where to do the work, what are the tools or equipment to use, what workers to hire or assist with the work, where to purchase supplies and services, what work must be performed by a specified individual, and what order or sequence to follow when performing the work. Degree of instruction means that the more detailed the instructions, the more control the business exercises over the worker. More detailed instructions indicate that the worker is an employee. Less detailed instructions reflects less control, indicating that the worker is more likely an independent contractor. But note that the amount of instruction needed varies among different jobs. Even if no instructions are given, Sufficient behavioral control may exist if the employer has the right to control how the work results are achieved. A business may lack the knowledge to instruct some highly specialized professionals. In other cases, the task may require little or no instruction. The key consideration is whether the business has retained the right to control the details of a worker's performance, or instead has given up that right. Evaluation systems. If an evaluation system measures the details of how the work is performed, then these factors would point to an employee. If the evaluation system measures just the end result, then this can point to either an independent contractor or an employee. And training. If the business provides the worker with training on how to do the job, This indicates that the business wants the job done in a particular way. This is strong evidence that the worker is indeed an employee. Periodic or ongoing training about procedures and methods is even stronger evidence of an employer-employee relationship. However, independent contractors ordinarily use their own methods. Financial control refers to the facts that show whether or not the business has the right to control the economic aspects of the worker's job. These include things like how the worker is paid, whether expenses are reimbursed, who provides tools and supplies, and financial control factors fall into these following categories. Significant investment, unreimbursed expenses, opportunity for profit or loss, services available to the market, and method of payment. Significant investment. An independent contractor often has a significant investment in the equipment he or she uses in working for someone else. However, in many occupations, such as construction, workers spend thousands of dollars on the tools and equipment they use and are still considered to be employees. There are no precise dollar limits that must be met in order to have a significant investment. Furthermore, a significant investment is not, necessarily nece- it's not necessary for independent contractor status, as some types of work simply do not require large expenditures. Unreimbursed Expenses Independent contractors are more likely to have unreimbursed expenses than are employees. Fixed ongoing costs that are incurred regardless of whether work is currently being performed are especially important. However, employees may also incur unreimbursed expenses in connection with the services that they perform for the business. Opportunity for profit or loss. If a worker has a significant investment in the tools and equipment used, and if the worker has unreimbursed expenses, the worker has a greater opportunity to lose money. For example, their expenses will exceed their income from the work that they're performing. Having the possibility of incurring a loss indicates that the worker is an independent contractor. Services available to the market. An independent contractor is generally free to seek out business opportunities. Independent contractors often advertise, maintain a visible business location, and are available to work in the relevant market. Method of payment. An employee is generally guaranteed a regular wage amount for an hourly, weekly, or other period of time. This usually indicates that a worker is an employee even when the wage or salary is supplemented by a commission. An independent contractor is usually paid by a flat fee for the job. However, it is common in some professions such as law to pay independent contractors hourly. If the worker uses your equipment, gets a regular paycheck, especially if using a timesheet or a clock to track time, and doesn't have the opportunity to grow their income by working with other businesses, they are most likely an employee and should be treated as such. And the third factor to look at is type of relationship. This refers to the facts that show how the worker and the business perceive their relationship to each other. Are there written contracts or employee-type benefits, such as a pension plan, insurance, or vacation pay? Will the relationship continue? And is the work performed a key aspect of the business? The factors for the type of relationship between two parties generally fall into the categories of written contracts, employee benefits, Permanency of the relationship and services provided is a key activity of the business. Written contracts. Although a contract may state that the worker is an employee or an independent contractor, this is not sufficient to determine the worker's status. The IRS is not required to follow a contract stating that the worker is an independent contractor responsible for paying his or her self-employment tax. How the parties work together determines whether the worker is an employee or an independent contractor. Employee benefits Employee benefits include things like insurance, pension plans, paid vacation, sick days, and disability insurance businesses generally do not grant these benefits to independent contractors. However, the lack of these types of benefits does not necessarily mean that a worker is an independent contractor. Permanency of the relationship. If you hire a worker with the expectation that the relationship will continue indefinitely rather than for a specific project or period, this is generally considered evidence that the intent was to create an employer-employee relationship. Services provided is a key activity of the business. If a worker provides services that are a key aspect of the business, it is more likely that the business will have the right to direct and control his or her activities. For example, if a law firm hires an attorney, it's likely that it will present the attorney's work as its own and would have the right to control or direct that work. This would indicate an employer-employee relationship. It's important to note here that some states use the ABC test to distinguish independent contractors from employees. One example is California that's updated their factors as of April 30th, 2018. Missing one point of the three-factor test means that the worker must be classified as an employee. The three factors used to determine the status of the worker include, number one, that the worker is free from the control and direction of the hirer in connection with the performance of the work, both under the contract for the performance of such work, that the performance is work that's outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business, and that the worker is customarily engaged in an independently established trade, occupation, or business of the same nature as the work that's performed for the hiring entity. Classifying an employee as an independent contractor with no reasonable basis for doing so makes employers liable for employment taxes. Certain employers that can provide a reasonable basis for not treating a worker as an employee may have the opportunity to avoid paying employment taxes. In addition, the Voluntary Classification Settlement Program VCSP, offers certain eligible businesses the option to reclassify their workers as employees with partial relief from federal employment taxes. So if you have classified someone as an independent contractor, and going back and looking at these guidelines, you find out that really they should be an employee, it's important to start putting them on payroll and paying them accordingly. If you have an audit, and they go back and look in the past, and find that technically they should have been an employee, you could potentially owe back taxes and penalties and interest. I've had a client who came to me years ago after having been uh, found by the state of California that they should have been paying someone as an employee instead of an independent contractor. And it came about because it was a disgruntled employee who had been fired for trying to steal the business of the customer. And when they were fired, they went to the state of California and filed for unemployment benefits. And once that happened, they did an audit and realized that they had not had them paid properly. So they ended up owing payroll taxes back to California, as well as the IRS was notified that they were improperly classified as well. And so they had a huge tax bill for multiple years. And it unfortunately actually put them out of business. Uh, because the taxes were so high. So again, it's important that you classify them correctly. I know a lot of times people want to avoid the cost of payroll, having a payroll company and workers' compensation, uh, but failing to follow these guidelines and then being found later to have done it improperly could get you into some financial troubles and it would be difficult to have to come up with that extra cash to cover your your penalties and interest and back taxes. So I do encourage you, if you have questions too on what it takes to put someone on payroll, you can always give us a call at our office. Our phone number here is 310-534-5577. And again, if you have any questions regarding uh, this topic, or who should be an employee, what it takes to put someone on payroll, you can also reach out to us. Again, our uh, email address, media at abnp.com. Okay, so it looks like it's about to take another quick break. Uh, Be sure to hang around to hear information on our meal and rest period requirements. And again, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to reach out to us. Um, We can take calls after the break if you're interested. The phone number is 866 472 5790. That's 866 472 5790. In the meantime, listen to these commercials and we'll be back real soon.
0: From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Are you up late at night after a long day's work trying to do your bookkeeping? Are you frustrated with your lack of QuickBooks knowledge or feel you don't understand it at all? Do payroll tax calculations and reporting stress you out? Whether you're a sole proprietor or an officer of a corporation, Affordable Bookkeeping and Payroll Services is here to help. We work with overwhelmed entrepreneurs to remove the burden of bookkeeping and payroll tasks, giving them peace of mind and the freedom to do the parts of the business they love. Our bookkeeping clients include service-based businesses such as medical offices, fast food restaurants, landscapers, and gyms. We also assist franchise owners to create the necessary reports to submit each month. We are a full-service payroll company, assisting clients of 1 to 120 employees. We offer full and self-service options. If you're ready to offload tasks that burden you, reach out to us today at 310-534-5577 or email contact at abandp.com. Call us today. Have peace of mind tonight. it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to BizHelp For You. If you have a question or comment about the show, send us an email to media at abnp.com. That's media at aband Now, back to BizHelp For You.
1: Welcome back to BizHelp for You with Candy Messer. In the last segment, we discussed employment mistakes and if the worker can be classified as an independent contractor or must be an employee. Are there any questions? You can call 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. In the meantime, let's look at meal and rest periods. According to the Federal Department of Labor, it is not mandatory for employers to provide employee rest breaks or meal periods. However, as scheduled work breaks tend to greatly increase employee efficiency and happiness, most employers encourage one or two meal and rest periods throughout the workday. If you are one of those employers, here are a few regulations you are required by federal law to fulfill. And please note, the following are federal requirements only, not state. As many states have additional meal and rest period regulations, one should always research their state rules as well. Rest periods of short duration, running from 5 minutes to about 20 minutes, are common and are seen as promoting the efficiency of the employee and are customarily paid for as working time. This means that employees are paid for the time even while not doing company business. However, if an employee takes off more time than allowed, that amount can be deducted from their paycheck. For example, if a worker is lauded a rest period of 20 minutes but takes a 30 minute break instead, the employer is only responsible for adding the 20 minutes to the worker's pay. Meal periods typically are 30 minutes long and like rest periods, there are breaks in the workday for meals that are not mandatory. If an employee is granted a meal period, however, law requires that the employee be relieved completely of all work-related duties while on their break, and as such, the employer need not compensate them for their time. The employee is not relieved of duties if he's required to perform any task, whether active or inactive, while eating. For instance, if an employee is required to stay on the sales floor in case a customer comes into the store, they are eating while working. Should, in the event of emergency, a worker be needed back on duty during a meal period, time spent working is billable time until the employee is able to resume their break once more. Now, as mentioned earlier, many states have requirements that differ from federal law. As a majority of our clients, as well as ab main office, are located in California, we wanted to share California regulations with you as well. So rest periods. Similar to meal periods, though not mandatory by federal law, California requires all employers to provide their workers with a paid 10-minute rest period every four hours of work. If practical, law demands that the breaks fall within the middle of the workday, while employees must also be completely relieved of duty throughout the rest period. If an employer follows California guidelines by relieving a worker of duty at the proper time, but the employee refuses to take or skips over their break, the employer can legally not be held liable, nor are they in charge of forcing employees to take their breaks. Similarly, if a California employer refuses to provide their employee with meal or rest periods throughout their shift, the employee has the right to demand an additional one-hour's wage premium per workday on top of the regular paycheck. If the employer refuses to provide the premium as well, workers are encouraged to file a wage claim. Lastly, while it's common for employees to leave the workplace while on break— If an employer expressly asks their worker not to leave, as long as the employer remains completely off-duty during the length of their break, they have a legal responsibility to stay on site. California meal periods. According to the California Department of Industrial Relations, employers are required to provide their workers with a 30-minute meal period for every five hours of work done, two breaks for 10 hours of work, and so on. Employees must be completely relieved of all duties while on a lunch break, or the employer will otherwise have to compensate them for the additional time spent working. If the employee is only set to work for a total of six hours, the meal period may be waived by mutual consent of both the employer and an employee, while the same thing goes for waiving the last of the two breaks within a 12-hour shift. However, the second meal period can only be waived if the first was taken. For employees who cannot be relieved completely of duty due to the nature of their job, for instance, emergency or on-call workers, paid on-duty breaks must be provided by the employer. An on-duty meal period shall be permitted only when the nature of the work prevents an employee from being relieved of all duty and when by written agreement between the employer and employee an on-the-job paid meal period is agreed to. The written agreement must state that the employee may, in writing, revoke the agreement at any time. If the employer requires the employee to remain at the work site or facility during the meal period, the meal period must be paid. This is true even where the employee is relieved of all work duties during the meal period. If an employer fails to provide an employee a meal period in accordance with the applicable wage order, the employer must pay one additional hour of pay at the employee's regular rate of pay for each workday that the meal period is not provided. This additional hour is not counted as hours worked for purposes of overtime calculations. Exceptions apply for those working in the motion picture industry. If you're unsure what laws apply to your industry, Be sure to look up the specific wage order, which gives details of the requirements. These can be found on the website of the California Department of Industrial Relations. So there's some additional considerations as well. In the case of disabled persons or nursing mothers, the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Fair Labor Standards Act require employers to modify workplaces as necessary to accommodate such persons. These modifications can include longer break periods, altered work assignments, wheelchair-accessible workspaces, private nursing areas that are not bathrooms, and more frequent breaks for mothers to pump breast milk as necessary. Additionally, most meal and rest period standards apply to non-exempt employees. As such, employers with exempt employees should look into the specific standards as well as refer to their individual state regulations. Now, earlier we talked about the guidelines around hiring a minor to work in your business. Are you aware that you may be able to hire your children as employees and receive a tax benefit for doing so? If you're a business owner operating a sole proprietorship or a partnership where both partners are the biological parents of the child, you can employ that child and take advantage of the benefits available. The child's income would be subject to federal withholding. However, if they earn up to the standard deduction for the year, no tax would be due. They would be exempt from Social Security and Medicare taxes until they're 18 years old, unless employed in domestic service, which is exempt until age 21. They are also exempt from federal unemployment taxes until age 21. Based on your state guidelines, they may also be exempt from state payroll taxes too. The wages for services of a child are subject to income tax withholding, as well as social security, Medicare, and federal unemployment taxes, if he or she works for a corporation, even if the corporation is controlled by the child's parent. A partnership, even if the child's parent is a partner, unless each partner is a parent of the child or if they're working for an estate, even if it's the estate of a deceased parent. So how does this benefit affect you? If you hire your minor child to assist in the business, doing age-appropriate tasks for compensation, of course, you will expense this salary, reducing your profit in the business, which therefore reduces your taxable income for the year. For instance, if your business pays 25% income tax, and you pay your child $5,000, you would save $1,250 in an income tax. You would also save the Social Security Medicare employer match that is paid on employees. In our example, that's an additional savings of $382.50. And don't forget, most likely, you won't have the state taxes either. Hopefully, some of the wages your child earns Are put away for the future? A college fund or saving for a car? So what about if you have a family member that wants to work for you in your business and they're not your children? Are there any tax benefits for having them as an employee? Well, if you hire your spouse, their earnings are subject to income tax withholding, social security, and Medicare taxes but not the federal unemployment tax, also known as FUTA. As the FUTA tax is a small percentage calculated on only the first $7,000 of wages earned, this is not really much of a tax savings. The wages for your spouse would be subject to all taxes if he or she works for a corporation, even if it's controlled by you, or a partnership, even if the individual spouse is a partner. And what about if you hire a parent? If your parent works for you in your business, the wages you pay to him or her are subject to income tax withholding, Social Security, and Medicare taxes, but not FUTA. If paying for services not done as part of your business, Social Security and Medicare taxes do not apply unless they are performing domestic services under the following conditions. You employ your parent to work in the home. You have a child or stepchild living in the home. You are a widow or a widower, divorced, living with a spouse, and who, because of a mental or physical condition, can't care for the child or stepchild for at least four continuous weeks in a calendar quarter. And the child or stepchild is either under age 18 or requires the personal care of an adult for at least four continuous weeks in a calendar quarter due to a mental or physical condition. This was a lot of information that we shared today that's a lot of legalese. A lot of people don't understand some of the employment laws and what the difference between state and federal guidelines are. So as a reminder, states are usually much more stringent than the federal government. So if you are employing someone, especially if hiring someone for the first time, it's important to really look up the guidelines that apply to you. Um, As I mentioned earlier, federal law has a minimum wage and many states have a higher minimum wage. So making sure that you are paying the correct wage is important. Also, as an example, since the federal law says that overtime is only at 40 hours of pay, other states have rules. Again, in California, if an employee is working more than eight hours in a day, that actually counts as overtime as well. So even if they work less than 40 hours, working more than eight hours in a day, overtime would still apply. So if you have questions regarding employment laws, if you have a human resources specialist you can reach out to, I highly recommend that you chat with them. If you don't have a resource and you're interested in hiring someone and you just need some assistance, you can always reach out to us as well. Our office number is 310-534-5577. And again, our email you can reach us at media at abnp.com. There are so many guidelines to know and understand when it comes to hiring an employee. Making sure that you meet the federal and state guidelines is imperative. And again, remember, the location with the most stringent rules takes precedence. So again, talk to a human resources professional if you're unsure what rules apply to you and your business. So thank you for listening to bizhelp for You on the Voice America Internet Radio Network. I hope you found this topic interesting and that it provided you information to help you understand the regulations surrounding the hiring of an employee. Next week, I'll be having a guest and Bibi Goldstein of Buying Time will be here to discuss the virtual assistants and how to set up systems and processes in your business. If you have any comments or questions, be sure to reach out at us at media at abnp.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And my website is www.abnp.com. Links can be found on my Voice America page. Remember, tune in each Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And if you can't join for the live show, you can find the episode saved on the business channel, www.voiceamerica.com. Until next time, have a great week.
0: Thank you for listening to BizHelp for You. Please join your host, Candy Messer, again next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a terrific week.